Today we turn in God's Word to Matthew chapter 5, continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount in verses 21 through 26. On page 4 you'll find an outline as well. We welcome those visiting with us here in person and online, and we turn together now to the Word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Do you have a problem with anger? Yes, and so do I. We all do in different degrees and different ways. David Paulison has gone to be with the Lord, but he wrote a book, Good and Angry. I encourage you, if you haven't seen it, to look at it. I'll be quoting and referencing it here today. He says, let's meet Mount St. Helens. What's that, kids? A volcano. Helen was in her late 60s. She was so consumed with hatred that her anger had destroyed her marriage intimidated and alienated her children, cost her job after job, and driven away every person who ever tried to be her friend. She spoke of grievances that went back for decades. Some anger is like that. Other anger is like an iceberg. Jimmy was 16. He sat stone-faced. He gave a detailed recitation of all the injustices, unfairness, betrayal, disappointment, offense, and plain old stupidity committed against him. His anger was premeditated, cold-blooded murder more than crime in the passion of the moment. Often, loved ones, there's a cumulative effect to the disappointments and frustrations of life where you're disillusioned, cynical, apathetic, and you don't even care to care. That's, as well, a form of anger. Anger makes us crazy, blind, confused, and confusing, Paulison says. And I'm sure as we reflect on our hearts today, you'll say, yeah, there are moments when I have exploded. There are times that I have been apathetically cold. And sometimes there are seasons where those things, like a hamster wheel, continue. Is there any hope? 
Is there any help? Thanks be to God that in Christ there is. We need forgiveness. We need repentance. We need strength to change. We need grace that is absolutely abounding to us. We need God to come near to us. And we need the help of his spirit. Do you have a problem with anger? First, what must we not do? Do not murder. In Matthew 5.21, Jesus begins what are six statements of the law and then his statements in response. What's going on here? Do you see what he says? You have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, we saw last week, Jesus is not teaching a different law than Moses. Jesus is not changing or overturning the moral law of Moses. But Jesus is telling us the law in the new covenant is the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. So this is who you are in me. This is what you have in me. The kingdom of heaven has come into this present evil age in Christ. It is here already, in part, not yet consummated. This is a picture of perfect life in my kingdom. And this is a picture of what I'm doing among you right now. I want you to know the law is about the heart. It's always been about the heart. The Pharisees distorted it. It's never been about just external obedience. I love your law, O God, the psalmist says. Jesus wants you to know, as we saw last week, he is the perfect law keeper. He is the law defender. And he is the one who is teaching us now about murder. Look at verse 21 again. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. See that phrase? Did that come from the sixth commandment? Exodus 20, kids? No, it didn't. The sixth commandment says you shall not murder. So was this an addition by the Pharisees? No, it wasn't. This particular part of the word of God actually predates the giving of the law on Sinai as it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. When God said, whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall man be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. So there is here in Jesus a going back to Genesis and a saying, there is such a thing as lawful killing. According to Genesis 9, it is because life is precious that someone who takes life unlawfully should be put to death. That's what Jesus is eventually here going back to. There is also such a thing as lawful killing in just war. Jesus in Matthew 5 is not a pacifist. He understands, because he is the lawgiver, that as the government is armed with the sword to restrain evil, we are to understand a just war pursues protection, establishing justice, and the goal of just war is not the destruction of life, but the preservation of life. The same is true of self-defense. So there is lawful killing when it says do not murder. What then is unlawful killing? This sixth commandment applies to murder in cold blood, manslaughter with passionate rage, negligent homicide, resulting from recklessness or carelessness. It is a sin to commit murder, like Cain did to Abel. 
right back in the beginning of Genesis. It is a sin to command murder, as David did to Uriah and had Uriah killed. It's a sin to consent to murder, like Pilate with Jesus. It is a sin to conceal murder, like abortion. Loved ones, what is the unborn? A person, a child made in God's image. Abortion is premeditated murder. It is a bloody sacrament of a pagan world of evil and the powers of darkness. And even as you see in the news right now, we are praying for Roe to be overturned, for repentance to take place, for God's common grace to be poured out upon this country. We are living in these days right now. Abortion is murder. Our culture is a culture of death all over the place. Killings and shootings in terrorism and schools and on highways. Rapes and murders and injustices all over the place. Violence in the media where treating violence is kind of becoming a humorous form of entertainment. Loved ones, we care about every life in the womb. Every person made in God's image, not only in the womb, but out of the womb, and not only as a young child, but through all the stages of life, every person from every tribe, tongue, and nation has been made in God's image. God has a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, his elect. And we love the child who is conceived in the womb and the elderly person who is at the end of their life. Do not murder means sins like euthanasia are outlawed by God's law. It means we don't take our life into our own hands through suicide or physician-assisted suicide. And if you're struggling with any of these things, come and talk to someone who's godly and mature in your life to get help. God gives life. God takes away life. We are not to be reckless in our life. The sixth commandment applies to unnecessary risk-taking, things like drunk driving. This commandment tells us to give thanks to God for life, to trust in him, and as we live in a culture of death, that's what we live in, we need to remember that the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what this world has come to, They said in delight, look who has come into the world. Secondly, what Christ teaches us as the one who is the righteous one in terms of searching our hearts. There are three uses of the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. We saw that last week. Do you remember? The first use, called the pedagogical use, a mirror. The law shows us our sin, convicts us, points us to Christ. The second use, the law as a curb. What does a curb do, kids? Well, if you're kind of dozing off as you're driving or riding your bicycle, you, you hit the curb and you, you realize, whoa, i got to get back in the middle. A curb to restrain evil in society. The third use of the law, Calvin called it the normative use, as a guide in gratitude. The law functions according to what covenant you are in. If someone's not a Christian, they're still under a covenant of works. 
They're dead in Adam. The law says do this and live. Don't do this and die. If by faith through the Holy Spirit you are trusting in Christ, you're in a covenant of grace. You can't be brought back under the condemnation of the law. You're covered by the blood and righteousness of Christ, the righteous law keeper. And for the Christian, it's not do this and live. It's do this because you live. We printed on page 5, Westminster Confession 20, Christian liberty. The freedom Christ has purchased for you is not a liberty to sin. It's a freedom to love him and to obey him. And it's a reminder that Christ came, Matthew 5, 17, to fulfill the law. One way that happens, Christian, is he fulfills the law in you. The purpose of God's law by the Spirit is to make a holy people dedicated to God. Jesus fulfills the law in you by his Spirit, recreating you to be more like him. Our attitude to the law of God is an index of our attitude to God himself. And as we look at the sixth commandment, it's easy to think, well, I haven't cold-blooded murdered anyone. I'm good. And Jesus, like a good physician, is diagnosing a deep spiritual problem. He's searching by the Spirit our motivations, our desires, our unspoken words and our spoken words, our attitudes, and the law that is written on our hearts is reminding us that murder and violence comes from the heart. By nature, loved ones, we hate God and we hate our neighbor. By nature, we are very angry people. What is anger? Well, David Paulison says, it's the way we react when something we think important is not the way it's supposed to be. It's a moral issue. Anger is the emotion of moral judgment. It's saying, I'm against that. I'm displeased with that. I care about that. That is important. Anger itself is not a sin. Ephesians 4, we read that. Be angry and do not sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. God is holy, 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 and he has a holy, righteous wrath against sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. Christ had a righteous anger as his house, the temple, was made into a den of thieves. As Gentiles were not able to pray there, he overturned the temple, the money changers there. Christ was angry with the scribes and Pharisees. They were deceiving people. Paul was angry with those who disturbed the peace of the church. Righteous anger is always controlled, always at the right object, and always for the right reason. A cry for God's justice. So when you hear about child pornography, or wickedness being done, or rape and evil and It is right to be morally indignant about it. When you realize the sin in our own hearts, it's right to hate that sin. We need to hate our sin more than we do. A big part of our problem is we become apathetic. 
especially when it comes to our own hearts. In our anger against sin, we also must have compassion for the one sinning. Because apart from the grace of God, that would be us. And pray rather than despise that person. When we despise them, we are breaking this sixth commandment. Because most of our anger, as we know, is not righteous. Most of the time, I'm wrong because I'm angry because someone crossed my way. Because I was prevented from getting what I wanted. James 4. Quarrels and fights happen because our passions are at war in us. We desire, we don't have it, we want it, we murder, we covet, we fight, we quarrel. Here's the DNA of this. Pride fuels kids like wood that's really dry, that can burn in a moment. Pride fuels self-righteousness. Self-righteousness fuels sinful anger. Sinful anger fuels destructive thoughts, words, actions. Who among us here today has not known what it's like to have sinful anger in our hearts. Every one of us knows this. It is destructive. We burn with offense so easily, and then we indict others. And anger in this way that Jesus is talking about is so just self-obsessed. That's why it's so dangerous when we're living in this sin of anger. Because we don't see things rightly. By nature, it's self-blinding. I'm right. You're wrong. That's all I'm thinking about. I'm rehearsing it in my mind. What does this look like, this rotten sin of anger? Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Do you remember that first moment, if you have, when you saw it? You saw pictures, but then when you're there. It's breathtaking. I thought of Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I have never seen anything quite like it. And I'm sure you have other experiences and the beauty of God's creation. David Pallison helps here with diagnosing our anger. You're at at the Grand Canyon. You're there. It's early and dark. And you start to watch the sun come up. At first, you just see contours. You dimly see what's in front of you. That's what it's like, Paulison says, to identify by name the specific lusts and sins that are producing our battles. But as the sun breaks forth, you see every color, every rock, and all the beauty of that Grand Canyon pointing to the greater beauty of God. That's the specific conviction of what is true in my heart. My anger is not only my cutting and defensive words, but the dismissive attitude, the negative spin that I put on everything someone else says, and the positive justifying spin I put on myself, how I focus on my performance, how I evade, how I'm self-righteously self-pitying. And all of this, Paulison says, is showing my pride against God and my restless demand for what I want. 
This rotten sin of anger appears in a lot of different ways. Some of you might come from homes with a lot of yelling, a lot of door slamming, or worse. Others might come from homes where it's kind of a passive-aggressive apathy. Where is your tendency? Where is mine? Where is the tendency of our spouse and kids? Anger can be when I'm dismissive or in contention. Jealousy is a form of anger. Jealousy, which means wanting, living for the wrong thing. Selfish ambition, putting myself on the throne. Paul draws that out, doesn't he? Or uh, James does, I'm sorry, in James 3. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above. James says that is earthly, unspiritual, and you know what he says next? Demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Loved ones, there is an aspect of anger that is devilish. At its worst, some forms of anger are physically and verbally abusive. It's madness. It's out of control. It's destructive. It's insane acts of anger where the person is almost unrecognizable. James brings that out. Other anger is a hatred where, and I think this is a problem in a lot of professing Christians, where a lot of people just hate a lot of people. There's a lot of people that I can't stand in my life, or I hate that group of people, or that enemy, I just hate them. Or, it gets even worse, a lot of professing Christians hate other Christians, the way they talk about each other. Jesus says, you can't get away with this. This is the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. My law is searching that heart. It's not about external conformity. He's revealing our sin because he loves you so much. For some, it might be just irritability, and we kind of brush it off. Well, I'm just irritable. We've got a lot of words for that, right? I'm testy. I'm grouchy. I'm cranky. It's like anger, Paulison says, on a hair trigger. Others are very disagreeable, argumentative. We, yes, can disagree as long as we're not disagreeable. <laughs> Others are bitter. This is expressing a long-lasting anger. Grievances and things people can remember that go back months or years, and it just comes up again, and the person is living with it, and sometimes it's passive. Pallison brings this out. Passive anger hides behind surfaces. And the person may not even be know, they're, know they're, that they're angry. As long as it's undetected, the person doesn't see it. But the side effects, Paulison says, depression, lethargy, pessimism, can all stem from this. This is not saying that's the only place. This is just saying that can be a symptom of this. Self-righteous anger, on the other hand, loves bringing up grievances. 
and delights in it and gets fuel for it. The root of this problem is in the human heart. Jesus says, think about how you're thinking. Where does your mind go? The mindset on the flesh, Romans 8, is death. The mindset on the spirit is life. Jesus wants something better for us. Think about how we easily murder people in our thoughts. That then leads to tongue murder. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says in Matthew 5, whoever insults his brother, verse 22, maybe your translation says raka, meaning you empty head, you idiot, he is so dumb, she is so stupid, moron. Kids, this is part of what God is calling upon us to repent of in our words, how we talk to each other. Our brother and sister, mom and dad, the respect we are to show our parents, your teacher. When you say that, Jesus says, you are cutting them down to size. The word literally means you're accusing them, raka, of spiritual ignorance. So it's even worse than just kind of, you dummy. It's saying you don't know the truth. Jesus goes on. Or when you say, you fool, See that? Now, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The Proverbs talks about a fool who is unteachable, hot-headed, always right, never wrong. Ironically, the person who calls someone a fool, according to this definition of Proverbs, is a fool. It's coming back on him. And that's what the angry person doesn't see. When you say to someone, you fool, you're saying you have no grace in your life. You're senseless. I'm dismissing you. You're a good for nothing. Kids, if you ever say, I hate you, you're saying, I wish you were dead. That's tongue murder. Telling jokes that are meant to be funny but are harmful to someone is murder in the heart and in the tongue. Unwholesome words, Ephesians talks about. Words that are like a dead fish. Words, you know this. You've spoken these words. You've done, and I have done such damage with our words that it's as if we've left behind a corpse. We have killed the spirit of that person we're talking to or talking about. We've left them dead in their soul. We have so belittled and humiliated them. We've driven the sword into them with our tongue. And this is one reason gossip is so devilish. The gossiper carries the devil in his tongue. The one who hears gossip carries the devil in his ears. Loved ones, when we hear gossip, we need to stop it and tell that person to stop it. And say, don't carry on. You need to go to this person and this needs to end. Venting. Sometimes maybe you've said, well, I just need to vent. We've all vented. What is venting? Again, searching the heart. Alistair Groves. The world says you've got to get it off your chest. You've got to blow off steam. 
Does venting work? You might temporarily think, yeah, I, I feel better. But Grove says venting actually reinforces why I was angry in the first place. In passionately articulating in anger why that person did me wrong, I am reinforcing in my beliefs why I was angry in the first place. And it becomes a cycle. And it gets worse. And it grows. Venting is not the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes venting happens online. What would Jesus' words look like in Matthew 5 here if Christians practiced this in how they treated each other in person and online? The word of God sometimes cuts deeply. Words can destroy a marriage. They can destroy a family, a school, a church. They can rip apart a neighborhood where people live next to each other and they hate each other. Loved ones, that's the devil at work. Jesus saying, is saying our words are a sign of what's going on in our hearts. So are our gestures, by the way. Kids, the rolling of the eyes, the ugh, the ugh, the dismissing, the countenance. You can tell on someone's face, like Cain, What's going on in their heart? Cain's countenance fell, it says in Genesis. Our face and eye is the mirror of the soul. Loved ones, do you have fits of rage that few people know about? A list of people you wish were just gone out of your life, thinking, I want to tell them off. Are you amazed at how few people get it? and frustrated with all these people. They don't see it. That reminds us of the Joe principle, someone said. You know the Joe principle? If Joe has a problem with everyone else, then Joe might be the problem. God's word tells us, make no friends with this person, this raging person. You will become like them. Repent and turn away, and remember the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. Todd Bordeaux brings this out. This is so key here, loved ones, as we live our lives. One person looks at another Christian. Imagine this. Not hard to imagine, sadly. But they throw an insult at them. And guess where they are when they do that? Standing before God's throne in heaven. Right in the presence of God and the angels, they say that gossip, that slander, that insult, right there to that person or about that person. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine doing that? The answer, of course, is no. We can't. If we can't, think about what kingdom you're in now. Heaven's ethics begins at conversion. You right now, Christian, are living in the presence of God in heaven this moment. You are citizens of the heavenly kingdom by faith in Christ. You live before God's face every day. So if it doesn't work in the presence of God and the angels one day in heaven, it shouldn't work now. What's the big idea of the Christian life? Remember what R.C. Sproul said? Coramdale. 
living before the face of God. That's going on in all of these things behind the scenes. We are always before the face of God. Meaning, integrity is when men and women live their lives in a pattern of consistency, in church, out of church, wherever they are, because all of life is lived before God's face. All of life is lived by his grace in Jesus, who tells us finally what we must do, the preservation of life. Jesus is not just saying, die to sin. He's saying, live by my spirit to righteousness. He says in Matthew 5, you got this man, he's about to offer a gift at the altar in the Old Testament, and he remembers that there's a problem, that someone has something against him. Now, this is a bit hyperbole. We don't have an Old Testament altar, right? We're not offering lambs. And here's how this can be taken out of context, one man says. Maybe you've heard this before, actually. You're going to church, it's the Lord's Supper, and you think someone, somewhere, at some time, might be offended with you. So you're just thinking this somewhere, and so you think, I can't go to church, I can't go to the Lord's Supper, I've just got to go to that person. That's not the point. Jesus is not talking here of the innocent party trying to resolve things. He's talking about the person who has, the context, right, crushed people with their words. The man or woman, or boy or girl, who has just been hammering away all week. And then thinks, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to take the Lord's Supper, and everything's fine. Jesus is saying that indicates a heart that is unrepentant. He's talking to people who are hardened in their sin, who think, I don't need to reconcile, even if I've offended someone. The psalm says, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. When the Lord works on our heart and humbles us, he will reveal to us by the Spirit, I've, I've offended someone here. As a husband, as a wife, as a sibling, as a pastor, in your calling, you'll start to realize, I've offended, and you'll be humbled and confess that sin and ask for forgiveness rather than blowing up, leaving all the carnage, and walking away and thinking everything's fine. Peter says, if things are not right between you and your wife, your prayers will be hindered. The point is reconcile. Quickly, Jesus says in verse 25, see that? I wonder, loved ones, if this is one of the commands we disobey more than we realize. Where we can go days, weeks, months, sometimes years, and say, I'm not going to reconcile. I'm right, they're wrong. And when we do that, we are risking hypocrisy before God. Worse than that, Matthew says, there's a second illustration a debtor thrown into debtor's prison. See that? A picture of hell and judgment. A debt financially that represents reconciliation and repentance that we are to have to other Christians. He says, brother. So this is Christian to Christian, loved ones. 
if you've thrown an insult at a brother, you would be guilty in the Old Testament according to the Spirit of God and the New Testament of murdering them. Now, in the Old Testament, you weren't brought to a court unless you physically murdered, right? Then it was the Sanhedrin. Now, Jesus says, the ethic of heaven, which has always been the ethic of God, never changed. The ethic of heaven says, I'm searching your heart, your attitude, and if you speak this way and refuse reconciliation, you're liable to not an earthly court, but what? A heavenly court. Calling someone a fool, Jesus says, means we're fit for hell. A picture of a rubbish pit and fires burning outside of Jerusalem that may have still been burning in Jesus' day. If we say we love God but hate our brother, we're a liar. Jesus is warning us who rage with our words, calling on us to repent, and comforting those who are on the receiving end of these words, that if you're receiving this, it's not futile to cry out to the Lord, to the judge, and God will hear your prayer. Where's the hope here? It's that God has made a way in his son for us to escape the wrath to come and to have fellowship with God forever, even as we've broken this commandment. Who among us hasn't raged? Who among us hasn't been apathetically angry? The commandment levels us, but Jesus came and never spoke a harsh word, never acted in sinful anger, but he bore the wrath and judgment of a holy God that we deserve on the cross in our place. The one who knew no sin was made sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, whom the Father never stopped loving when he hung on the cross, was crucified for murderers like us. As we think of the cross, we see by nature that we are the object of God's just wrath. And by grace, we are the object of his eternal, unmerited, merited for us by Christ, love. God loved you while you were yet a sinner. God loved you so much he sent his son to die for you. And we pray, God, give me more grace. As we come in repentance, more Christ, more strength, more forgiveness, more endurance. We bring our harsh anger. We bring our passive-aggressive anger. We lay it before God. We bring our gossip and our slander. We say, Jesus, forgive me. I have sinned against you. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And the word of God says that God changes us, including our sharp tongues, the word of God says the wisdom that comes from above is pure. It's peace-loving. It's considerate. It's gentle and meek and submissive. It's full of mercy, James 3. Good fruit. It's impartial. It's sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Loved ones, love is the fulfilling of the law. How do we love each other? 
by not in bitterness and gossip and anger, harshly pushing each other away, but by the grace of the Spirit and through the gospel of God, we forgive as we've been forgiven. We repent where we've sinned. We reach out to the one that we are at a distance from, and we delight to see God build his church and the promise that Jesus made will happen. The gates of hell, hell itself, will not prevail against it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess we are an angry people. Draw near to us, O God. Cleanse our hands from the rage of sin, from the double-mindedness of sin. Purify our hearts that we would be humbled, that you, O God, would pour out abundant mercy, that you would give us courage, genuine love, and patience, that this heavenly peace, this wisdom from above would rest upon our hearts, in our homes, in your church, in our lives, and produce a harvest of righteousness for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's respond singing together one of John Newton's hymns, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, on page 9. Let's stand. <laughs>